Hi folks, welcome to the latest edition of the Serverless Crack, our blog. We've been uh, we're just back from a, a little summer break, so we thought we'd uh, get things going again. We've had a we've had a nice summer. We've kind of been enjoying ourselves. Uh, my name's Dave Anderson. I'm just sitting here uh, uh, relaxing. I'm in sunny Greece at for a conference. Hey Mark, how's it going? How are you doing? Uh, it's going good. Um, working away. Um, did an event storming this this morning, which was a good crack. Um, yeah. Um, Looking forward to getting back into recording some some uh, some serverless crack videos. Good stuff. Yeah. What about you, Mike? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm well rested after our summer break, so um, keen to get into a lot of our serverless crack. So all good. All good. That's it. Back on it. It's been a good summer. I mean, one thing I certainly noticed it's it's mad to see the rise of sort of just serverless becoming a normal thing. A lot more people talking about EDA and eventual architecture. And even while architecture is, 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 is kind of growing, it seems like there's a maturity thing happening. I'm starting to notice with a, a lot of the stuff in the book, there's an awful lot of interest around modernization. And like we're in the cloud, now how do we take it to the next level? And for me, that's serverless, EDA, and architecture. And um, what a lot of people are talking about is resilience. You know, because things, it was Werner says, things fail all the time. So how do you kind of make sure you can kind of, um, you know, be resilient in your, in your workloads? So it's it's nice to see a lot of things coming out over the over the last couple of months on that. Yeah, it's um you're definitely starting to see and when we reinvent the early season is starting to kick in as well. You know, lots of good announcements around serverless, around EDA, around some of these well architected sort of services and capabilities are coming online. So, um, yeah, it's it's never been it's never been easier to to build a well architected, resilient and reliable workload on AWS. And the the tools and the, the capabilities are, are are definitely coming online to make it a lot easier for for, for teams. But I think a, a lot of the times when we did this in the past, it was quite sort of not academic, but there was quite a lot of knowledge you would have to ram in your head to, to think about and, and understand to, to deliver you know a resilient or a reliable workload. So I think the, the 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 guidance and the tooling is getting a lot better um, than ever before to give you some of like those guardrails and some of that guidance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even like we were, like Adrian Cockcroft has been talking about continuous resilience for many, many years. Adrian, as usual, is way ahead of the curve. I think when he started talking about that, it was like, you know, really, really hard to do. Still hard, but there's now lots of really good tools available. And speaking of which, we were at a AWS Resiliency, Resilience Day uh, this week in Belfast, which is good fun. And there's a lot of conversations about, you know, chaos testing, resiliency hub, uh, correction of error, things like that. Like, so that was that was a good event. Yeah, it was very good, and um, it was it was a really well run event. It was, it was great. Um, the speakers were, were fantastic, and the content was 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 really really good. Uh, they covered not only the well architected sort of framework um, sort of elements, but also then like they mentioned in the sort of that resilience modeling sort of capabilities, and they went over the resilience hub uh, tool, which was which was sort of very promising. Um, some of the chaos engineering practices that we've been sort of advocating for for quite a while they, they get into with the fault injection service which is again very good um, but then in, into some of the more um, not academic but, but more theoretical stuff around disaster recovery, business continuity planning and then one of the bits that I really liked was the uh, correction of errors, right, the the incident analysis, you know, post-incident sort of responses, you know, how do you, how do you incorporate some of these things into your um, ways of working and how do you make sure that they don't re re happen again and so yeah all, all, all in all a very good day and if you get a chance it's definitely something you should you should take a day to go and see 
yeah. Um, it certainly wasn't wasn't lost on us as we were kind of sitting there. It was actually in the the event was in the in the Titanic hotel, and it was in the drawing room that the designers of the Titanic used. It's a it's a it's a big kind of cylinder shaped room with with loads of windows on on the ceiling. Uh, it was like obviously built a hundred years ago, but um or more than that. But um, that's where the architects would sit and design the and all the ships that were built by Harlan the Wolf over like a hundred years ago. So it was uh, it wasn't lost on us that we were sitting looking at all this Titanic artifacts, talking about resilience. Yeah. Uh, just a lot of um, yeah, a lot of timely reminders that this stuff's important. Yeah, absolutely. And so, some of the later speakers today that did, did, did reference it, it was like it was a gift that just kept on giving, right? It's right there for you, right? You, you can line this up. But um, one of one of the things we we talk about a lot, and actually just talk about with Meg as well, is you know it's never just one thing, right? Oh, the Titanic sunk because it had an iceberg, but it's never just one thing. And you know, delivering a reliable, resilient workload system is never just one thing that you do to to make that happen, right? And for the Titanic example, you know, it's, it's funny, but my eight year old daughter is, is doing the Titanic research as part of her school project, so a lot of this stuff comes out, right? And it's like. It wasn't just the fact that they had an iceberg. It's the fact that you know the ship was on fire whenever they left harbor. Um, you know the the guy who had the keys to the binoculars uh, didn't make the, didn't make the trip, so they couldn't get the binoculars, so they couldn't see the iceberg. Right? Um, you know they didn't have enough lifeboats. Uh, why did they not have enough lifeboats? Oh, the guy asked them to get more lifeboats, but because of time pressures, they they wanted to sail on time. And uh, why were they going so fast? Well, that's because the coal was on fire. And so they had to burn more coal, so they were doing 22 knots instead of a normal speed. Uh, and again, time pressures from from the you know, White Star Lines to you know, beat, beat the record or whatever, right? So leadership pressure. Uh, you can see where we're going with this, right? It's not just one thing. There's, there's lots of different um, things that culminate in a disaster, right? It's not just not just the, the, the iceberg. It's all these small things that may seem innocuous or inconsequential in isolation, but when you build them up on an income and the culmination, they then can, can result in a very tragic disaster, obviously. Yeah. I think that's, like, it's interesting that. So you think about, like, resiliency and, you know, planning or thinking about resiliency with, you know, your 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 workload or your app or you know the your you know whatever it is you're building, it's very you've got to be really proactive about it. You know, like in those Titanic scenarios, Mark, I imagine really what you're thinking is, you know, did they try and simulate any of these types of things or practice their reactions to these types of things or how would they detect whenever these yeah. these sorts of issues are are happening? You know, and I think. While, while I think there's a lot of technology certainly helps with resiliency, and you kind of mentioned some of those there, but I think a lot of it is just technique, isn't it? And and, and process and practice. You're like, how do you think about planning for sort of unforeseen circumstances, you know? And I think, and that does kind of open the door. I know you mentioned Adrian, and I know Adrian's kind of, you know, the, the whole Netflix sort of background with the, you know, the chaos engineering, the chaos testing, the, the chaos monkeys and chaos gorillas, and I know they do all that. But well, that's genuinely interesting kind of way of thinking about stuff, isn't it? Like what happens if we lose this part of the system or we lose this part of the system? You know, what would we expect to see? What how would we even recover in them types of scenarios, you know? Um, so in the Titanic, you know, you could imagine they didn't maybe run too many of those types of scenarios. Maybe they had just way too much confidence in the yeah. in the ship, the unsinkable ship, 
No, I don't know. And that's Maybe. it. Like it's, it's, in software, we're in a very enviable position where we can run lots and lots of experiments and run lots and lots of hypotheses for relatively little money, right? So we, you know, these type of scenarios that would be very hard to do in the physical world with physical ships and what happens if you had an iceberg and the, the bunker's on fire, right? You're not going to simulate that too many times, right? Um, at scale. But we can do that in software, right? We can do that in the cloud. Yeah. We, can, we can run these experiments. We can inject these faults and simulate what happens, right? And it's back to some of the just good engineering practices and good well-architected practices around you. How are you testing? How are you gaining confidence in your system? What type of scenarios are you adding into your example mapping sessions? The cover for well, what happens if, right? Yeah, I'm thinking yeah, like, sorry, go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, but well, that, that's the correction of our stuff because we just remember that the Titanic is no different to um, like a pro modern project because it's a human element. You know what I mean? You've got to like, you've got the media pressures on the company, uh, competition with our companies, people being arrogant, ambitious, just not knowing what they don't know. Been in a hurry, not enough money. All of the, the human elements when you're doing something big come into play. But the correction of our stuff is interesting because what, when you do that post-event analysis, it's not like, oh, your man forgot to do this. Or your man didn't have the binoculars because they were locked. And it's like, well, what part of the system prevent that from happening? Well, let's not put a lock on the cupboard with the binoculars because then that won't happen again. So it's with a correction of error, you don't think it's not the human error. It's what 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 part of the system was designed that allows that error to happen because you know humans are humans people are going to stuff still going to happen if they make it very very hard to do the wrong thing so the, it's exactly the same pressures because white star was a company like like like, like any other you know so even if there's normal pressures we all have yeah go ahead Mike. no because that's the, i think that's the point i mean i think with things like with those tools and and even kind of you know, knowing the complexities of your system, there's only so much you can do up front, even with all those practices, you know, things are still going to go wrong. Um, but when those things do go wrong or, you know, um, that information is then really valuable. So if you're genuinely proactive about like, you know, setting your RTOs, your RPOs and running your chaos tests and stuff like that, you know, you're, you're up and you're, you're, when those things do happen, that information is actually really invaluable, you know, because it does highlight maybe areas or show you weaknesses or, you know, give you opportunity to kind of tighten things up. So for me, from, a, from an engineering perspective, it's genuinely a really interesting kind of area, you know. Um, I always kind of enjoy these scenarios as well because they're, they're actually quite creative. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I think there's, there's a couple of key elements here that you have to have a psychologically safe environment so that failure yeah. is a learning experience. And it's something that you can use to improve. And I think it's also then you got to make sure you schedule in mechanisms to actually start to get people in this sort of headspace, right? Uh, don't don't just expect it to happen on a, every random Friday that, hey, we're going to do some exploratory testing or some chaos engineering. You know, actually be proactive about putting in some schedules or some, yeah. some space in your plan to actually, okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to do some exploratory testing or we're going to do a chaos engineering or we're going to do a game day. You know, I think you can put good mechanisms in place to help at least surface some of these conversations and you know, get get everybody involved. Well, what yeah, are you going to Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. No, no. Uh, I was just going to say, and it, it, it might sound like it's optional as well to do this stuff, but but um, when your system goes down, then you're losing a fortune of money every hour. <laughs> it, it suddenly becomes uh, it, you're uh, sorry, it wasn't so optional. 
But um, yeah, going ahead, Mike. Sure, yeah. No, and you were. I think you mentioned earlier in the call again why we're starting to see sort of more proliferation in terms of serverless adoption, serverless usage, things like EDA. You know, which is kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of kind of you know distributed kind of macro micro style you know architectures and. I kind of feel in those areas that, you know, resiliency and planning for kind of disaster and, and recovery um, yeah. is, is is definitely something that's a real critical exercise. I think it's still, I think yeah. it's still emerging. And I mean, and I, I always think the leapfrog thing, because you, you, I mean, you might think as a company, we haven't started this yet. Just if somebody's listening, you think, oh, we have done none of that yet. It's a good time to start now. If you started this 10 years ago, you have to figure it all out. It's a bit like serverless or any of the cloud stuff. If you're in there at the start, you got to you got to knock a lot of corners off stuff and figure out how things work. If you start late, it's not a disaster because you can just use the latest and greatest and you get all that. It's like standing on the shoulders of giants. So like if you jump in there to something like resiliency hub, well-architected tool and security hub, there's a whole load of stuff just out of the box that you can use. Um, but as you say, Mark, it's, it's never one thing. Like I think of the the perfect storm as well. Like the the book that Sebastian Younger wrote about the the the, the shipment out of uh, Gloucester, and I think it was ninety one. The big storm. It wasn't just a big storm that caused the ship to sink. It was a whole bunch of stuff. You know that there was a whole load of stuff well documented. It was just this perfect storm of events yep. that that ends in tragedy. So I mean that's that's what you have to be resilient against. So it's 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 very interesting thinking this way. It's totally emerging as well. Yeah, totally. And in and, and the day, they, they went over some of the strategies for disaster recovery from backup and restore to pilot light to warm standby to multi-site active-active. But there's almost like another strategy there around if you've embraced the serverless first, well-architected mindset, you know, your workloads are intrinsically going to be more mature on that spectrum for disaster recovery than a, a more traditional workload, right? So there's there, there's things that you can do to, to almost... Um, have a lot more resiliency and reliability baked in if you embrace a lot of the serverless money services. You're getting a lot of um, multi-AZs, multi-regions, some of the services are even global, um, but you still need to plan for this stuff. But at least you're 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 yeah. starting further down the road than, than somebody yeah. building all an EC2 themselves. It's a huge yeah. point. Yeah. And then, Lauren, I mean, it's some of the, the, the pillars of engineering excellence. I mean, you should be doing this anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's effectively part of quality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I, it's um the chaos tests and things like that for me as well. Are, they build confidence. They like they give you, especially when you're doing thing like EDA architectures. You know where you're maybe integrating with several different kind of, you know, um, components or services in very different ways, and you're 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 interested in kind of, you know, what happens if one of these things goes out or goes down and. You know, and, you, and you're wanting to simulate those things and you want to kind of, you know, like game debt, you know, let, let's go in and take one or two of them out and see how the team reacts and find you know, certain things and see how, you know, resilient the, the actual solutions are. So for me, it's, it's a huge kind of confidence builder too. I'm, I'm trying to kind of, you know, we do this a lot now, which is great, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it is, you, you, every time you do it though, you learn, aren't you? There's always something where you're kind of, you're adding to your, your arsenal, your experience. <laughs> There's something you didn't think of. I remember when I first started working, like, God, over 25 years ago, a long time ago, for the first systems I worked on, I, I wrote a thing to detect that the test was they were going to pull the lead, pull the network cable out of the machine. Right. The machine had dual, dual network cables, and we had to write a system that whenever you pull yeah. the network cable up, I would have done the second one, and that was the actual test. They unplugged the thing, and it was running. 
telco system from Great Crack. But um, you know, this this stuff's not new, like, but it's it's evolving rapidly. Yeah, good fun. It's fun though. It's good. Yeah. So that's the crack. We'll leave it at that. So um, we're back on the road again. Um, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll keep the podcast going. So please give us a like or subscribe on um, Serverless Crack. Have a look at the blog on the Serverless Age and uh, give us a like or follow uh, at Serverless Age on Twitter. Thanks very much. Thanks everyone. Bye guys.